your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Uh, we are looking at the story uh, or the birth of John the Baptist in the morning. And you all know how I like to um, really stick with the subject at hand when we, when we come in the evening. And so what i like for us to do uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, of course, in two weeks is Christmas. We won't have Sunday evening service. Um, we're one of those uh, fundamentalist church that thinks if Christmas falls on Sunday, you should worship Jesus since you know, it is called Christ. Must. But anyways, so, um, um, so what we want to do in the evening, this week and next week, is look at the life of, of, of John the Baptist. Just two instances of him. We can't look at all of it. But since we're talking about John the Son of the Baptist in the morning, we'll talk about him a little bit here in the evening. And so what we want to do this, this week is look at the launching of his ministry. Uh, his, his birth sort of hinted at this, but, uh, but we really see it here in Matthew chapter 3. So with that, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word. And we'll read the first 12 verses. Matthew the Evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by, of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In Jerusalem and all Judea and all region of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we always do when we gather together in worship to open up your word, we trust to be shaped by it. Uh, would you transform us, open our entire being, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, that we would be, um, become more like you. Lord, this is a very straightforward of what it is John the Baptist wants us to do. It is the single most difficult thing for us as prideful, arrogant, sinful humans to do, to repent and believe the gospel. Would you lead us to faith in this time of worship? May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. See you. Well, this is the launching, as we said, of John the Baptist's ministry. And if it's with, well within the, the narrative of, of Matthew, you, you, I've pointed this out before, so I don't mean to keep repeating it, but I find it so fascinating that the, the opening chapters, really the whole book, but the opening chapters are retelling of the story of Israel. So um, basically everything Moses and the Israelites went through, Jesus went through. So much as you have a tyrant who is killing babies, so too Herod is killing babies. Just as uh, Moses came and the Israelites came out of Egypt, so too Jesus comes out of Egypt into the wilderness uh, or to the promised land. After this encounter here, we have the baptism of Jesus, which follows right after uh, this event. Uh, it parallels to 
uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. And, and just as the Israelites went through the water for 40 years in the wilderness, so too Jesus will go through the waters into the wilderness for 40 days. Just as in the wilderness, Moses climbs the mountain and gives a new law. So too Jesus coming out of the wilderness will climb a mountain and give a new law called Sermon on the Mount. And so we see all these parallels going on. But right here, right in the middle of all of that is the launching of John the Baptist's ministry, at least the way it's told. It's very clear. He's been out the wilderness and, 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 and he is, he's been growing in this way. So here you have a Levite, a son of Levi, a son of a priest. Instead of going into Jerusalem where the temple is, he goes out into the wilderness. And having experienced God there, he comes back to the promised land and he does the work of a priest, not with ceremony we saw this morning, but by pointing people to Christ, by cleansing Israel. And the way Israel is to be cleansed is through repentance and faith. Let's start with the ministry of John the Baptist here, the first six verses. And you'll notice it says there, in those days, John the Baptist, really John the baptizer would be a better description. The reason we call him John the Baptist is because he baptized. Obviously, you, you don't need a seminary degree for that. But you remember at this time, you don't really have last names, particularly Jews. And there are so many Johns at this time. John's a very common name. So you would have to associate them some other way. For example, Simon Peter, Simon of Cyrene, Simeon, the guy in, 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 in the uh, temple in Luke 2. Um, how about Jesus of Nazareth? Not to be confused with uh, other Jesuses in the New Testament, right? Uh, so you, we have John the Apostle, and, and, or John the Elder he goes by in, in 3 John. And here we have John the Baptizer. Um, and so this is where he gets his name. But notice, John the Baptist came. Now, you need to pause there, and that word is significant. It is a garden variety word in English, but with a little bit more oomph in, in, in Greek. What you have here is the standard Greek word for, for coming, right? Uh, ginosko. However, in Greek, one of the ways you can emphasize a word is by adding a prefix to it. We don't really do this in English. In English, a prefix could change the definition of a word, like theist and atheist, right? It changed the definition of word. One means you believe in God. The other one means you don't believe in God. So those prefixes are very in, in important. Well, in Greek, that is true, that it affects the meaning of the word. But in this context, a prefix is added for the purpose of emphasis. It isn't just that John the Baptist showed up one day because his calendar was free or because he was invited by First Baptist Church of uh, you know, Judea. But rather, John the Baptist, he showed up, right? And in fact, I can prove this. This word is used three or four times only, but three other times in Matthew's gospel. And each time, it, is, it signals something of great importance is about to happen. Pay attention to this. This person's arrival is going to change the story. The first was in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there showed up wise men. Now, that affects the storyline, right? Because Matthew wants us to see ultimately in his entire gospel, Jesus is king. So what does he do? King makers show up looking for the king. And they first show up to the guy claiming to be a king, but he ain't no king. They eventually find the true son of David. 
In chapter 3, we see it not just in verse 1, but also verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized by him. This is a significant moment. This is really the official launching of the public ministry of Jesus. It is here where God publicly acknowledges to Israel, this is the guy John's been telling you about. Him I am well pleased. One other example, Matthew chapter 14, which, which takes us a whole other direction. Matthew 14, 43 says, Immediately, while he yet spoke, came, showed up, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude of men with swords. The story takes a very important turn. And this word, this particular uh, 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 verb with the, the, the prefix is used here. So it isn't just there is this weirdo from the wilderness. It's rather this weirdo from the wilderness came and people were shook by it. And so here he comes. And what is he doing? He is preaching. Again, I, I want to emphasize this because I'm guilty because I never gave John the Baptist much thought during Christmas. And I confess it this morning. Is It never hit me that he is a priest. In that he is the son of a priest. He belongs in the temple. He belongs in the synagogue, not the wilderness. He is to do a ritual, not preaching. Yet God calls him to a ministry of preaching. And he comes preaching from the wilderness, in the wilderness of Judea. And remember, the wilderness is where you get away from God. But here we have one coming from the wilderness, which means he is actually leaving that arid land where we assume God isn't to be found. Chapter 4, Satan is found in the wilderness. However, Israel had become a spiritual wilderness, so it takes some, someone who, who, who understands the landscape. He comes preaching, and he ain't scared. He just came from the wilderness, and he preaches. And his basic message is simple yet profound. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or other, uh, other uh, parallels will say kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew doesn't like to use the term kingdom of God because he's very Jewish. You don't use God's name unless, uh, unless it can't be avoided. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very simple message, and that is repent. Why? The king's coming. The king's coming. I think I've told the story before that uh, I think mom and dad were afraid that during the summer months when we were staying home, just to, my, my brother and sister and I, mom and dad were working. I think particularly my mother, but both of them were afraid we were bored and that we would get bored, right? And let me tell you, boys don't get bored, okay? Like, like uh, we, we will chew a hole into the wall, but we will not get bored, right? We're, we're like, our, we got a puppy right now who, if she ain't got nothing to do, she's chewing on something, right? And then Beth boys. So mom would give us uh, all these chores, just a whole list of chores every day, you know, dishes. I think I've told you, mom had this thing about taking an old rag, wet it, and go up on the baseboards down the hallway. Mom would have this long hallway. And so here we are breaking our backs because, you know, we're 10. And we're just going all the way down. Why? I don't know. Who is looking at dust on the baseboards? The people you don't invite back to your house, that's who's doing it, right? And so we would just do all. But when do you think we did this? First thing in the morning? Nah. We knew when is mom and dad supposed to come home? And we did it 30 seconds before they got there. In fact, if we had to lock the door for an extra 10 seconds, <laughs> we were not above doing that. Right? That's John's point. You had better act straight. You had better get ready. The king is coming. And that is John's ministry. 
for to prepare the people. Now, the significance of this is given in verse three. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So this is a prophet. So he, he fits within prophecy itself. The quote is from Isaiah 40, verse three. And all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, use this verse to describe Jesus, the one who is crying in the wilderness. Now, remember, he's come from the wilderness, but it's described as crying in the wilderness. Because Israel, though as religious as they think they are, are still wilderness. They need to repent, prepare for God is coming. John the Baptist is basically the one who heralds the arrival of the king. To make the path straight, get out of the way, the king is coming. Much in the same way that if, if the President of the United States were to come to, to Frankfurt, good luck getting on U.S. 60 or 64, Right? I remember when uh, the, the late Queen Elizabeth the, 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 the first came to Louisville for uh, the Kentucky Derby. My wife and I, we, were, we always tried to escape Louisville during the Derby, but this year we were still in, in, in the city. And we were going to go St. Matthew's. We got stopped by the entourage of, 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 of the Queen. And my brother was working for a Louisville station. He was at the Derby with a camera. And, and, and uh, he, he told a story that snipers were there before him with a gun he assumed pointing right at him. Right? He's looking through there. Oh, that gun's loaded. <laughs> right? Well, I asked my brother, I said, yeah, we, 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 the queen drove right by us. Yeah, we got stopped and the queen went right by. She was in like, uh, all vehicles were, were, were black, right? Just, just like a mile of them, her, her entourage. And my brother's like, no, they were all white. No, I'm telling you, they were black and they shut everything down. And there comes the queen. He said, no, it was white. I'm like, oh, that's how they do that, Right? I mean, if the president shows up, there are people who make the path straight for him, who prepare the way, and you get out of the way for the king is coming. That is John the Baptist's role. Now, we've seen the sermon. We've seen the significance. What about the sign of his ministry? Verses 4 to 6. John wore a garment of, of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I made a joke of that today, but, but, but it is significant that, that his outward appearance— was in contrast to his fellow priests, was not the source and the power of his message. The gospel was the power and the source of his message. Now, I make jokes about three-pea suits and no fried chicken, but I do think there's some truth to that. I've grown up in a, in a traditional conservative context by which um, if you are in a suit, no one can hear you preach Jesus. And then, then now, now, I think you should dress appropriately within reason. But John the Baptist shows up Eating locusts, that's worse than being a vegan. I mean, can we agree with that? I mean, I mean, I mean come on. Well, almost worse, I guess. You know, it depends on, is it San Francisco vegan? Or, you know, had a bad experience with meat one day vegan. I, I, I don't know. But, um, but he's eating wild hunky. Wow, he's a man of the wild. He's a man of the wilderness. He is in the spirit of Elijah. And so he has the voice of Elijah. He's got the beard of Elijah. He's got the courage of Elijah. And just like Elijah, he comes not to speak to pagans. He comes to speak to those who claim to be the people of God. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. What, what was the sign of repentance? They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, don't forget Jordan is significant because it is the Jordan River by which the Israelites crossed into before entering to the promised land. How did they cross that? It was a retelling of the parting of the Red Sea. It's as if this new generation had to be baptized, if, 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 if it were. So, so he comes from the wilderness 
to the Jordan. There he meets the Israelites and they are baptized. And notice that closely associated with repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, is confession. They come to be baptized to confess. In their confession, they are baptized. In their repentance, they are baptized. Can I add just, just a quick excursion here? Because I think you'll find it fascinating. I actually think it'll help, help our text a little bit. And that is, have you really thought about where in the world did John get the idea of holding people underwater? You ever thought about that? You and I are Baptists. We, we think that's normal. But you read the Old Testament, no one's doing this. So where did John the Baptist get this idea? Clearly, Jesus approves of it and that he submits to it. Well, this is a subject of great interest. One of the things I've found over the years is if someone starts to read the Bible, I mean really read the Bible, not just to say they did it, but to really try to understand it. When they get to the Old Testament, they'll usually ask me, the number one question they'll ask me is, where did Cain get his wife? That comes up all the time. So the number one question I probably get across the board. The other question I get in the New Testament is often, though probably not the most common question, is where did baptism come from? Can I just explain that real quick so it'll help us with our text? Baptism comes from the Old Testament. A couple ways to see this. The first way is to see this typologically. That is, that although you, you won't see a dude uh, eating wild honey and locusts, dunking people underwater in the book of Numbers, you do see the pattern theologically, typologically laid out for uh, uh, in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few examples here. Throughout the Old Testament, water is symbolic of both cleansing and judgments. Both are used. For example, the great flood is both an act of cleansing. We, we got to get rid of all this evil. And in that cleansing is judgments. We got to get rid of all this evil. Judgment has come. You've had over 100 years to, to, to get right with Jesus. You didn't get right with Jesus. Here comes the rains. Okay? Both cleansing and judgment. The crossing of the Red Sea. There you see again cleansing. It is a type of baptism, a typological baptism for Israel. They become pure and clean. They've got the blood of the Lamb. Now they go into the promised land. But for the Egyptians, it's judgment. For the waters come crashing down upon them. You remember what Elisha instructed Naaman, the leper, to do. He had to go into the waters, into Jordan water, no less, and dunk himself Seven times. We ought to start doing that, right? Just, just in case the first one didn't take, right? And remember, Naaman has leprosy, which is a picture of judgments. Yet, coming out of the water, he is cleansed. Ezekiel prophesies that God will pour clean water over his people and will cleanse them and give them a new heart and spirit. This is Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The language of water of, as judgment and cleansing are there. In fact, the very next chapter of Ezekiel 36 going into chapter 37 is the Valley of the Dry Bones. Where that vision is given to Ezekiel, where God raises the dead, that is what baptism is. So theologically speaking, typologically speaking, it's right there in the Old Testament. 
John didn't wake up one day in the wilderness and say, sure, it would be nice if I can go swimming. Hey, I should make that the center of my, of my preaching. Rather, he's reading the Old Testament and says, this is how God works. He cleanses us. And in cleansing, he saves us from judgment. Not only is it typologically in the Old Testament, ceremonially it is in the Old Testament. There are countless ceremonial washings in the Mosaic, Mosaic law. The most significant of these is the Day of Atonement. Instead of reading all this, let me just summarize it for you. It's Le- Leviticus 16, if you want to read it on your own. The Day of Atonement is the most significant day on the Jewish calendar, that and Passover. It is the day where the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, where he will encounter God, make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of substitution on behalf of Israel. So that substitute will, will suffer the sin. So you have a propitiatory goat that goes in there, and then you have an expiatory goat. Now, what the priest does is he is isolated for a time to fast and to pray to cleanse his own life. But each time he goes into the temple, he has to make a sacrifice for himself. Before he does that, he has to bathe. He puts on a new robe. And remember, it can't, it can't be made of cotton because you don't want anything dirty to, to get attached to you. Cotton loves to get all, it's like Velcro. It just gets everything within a 20-mile radius onto it. So he has to wear a, a, a clean robe. He's washed. He goes into the presence of God. He comes back out. He bathes again. He goes back in, makes a sacrifice for the other priest. He comes back out bathes again. And he does this several times. And, and, and how often do we see the Israelites having to wash? You remember that, that those basins, those jars that were there, uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that wasn't there because people were drinking water because it was good for their health. They were doing it because in the Jewish system, you had to wash your hands as an act of cleansing at the wedding before you ate. Jesus took those that were supposed to cleanse the body and he turned it into wine, which is a picture of of a host of things in the Old Testament. So this image is all over the place in the Old Testament. By the time John starts to baptize people, the practice would not have been formed to Jewish uh, uh, believers. Jews would have been familiar with the imagery, just not just theologically, but practically, because there were groups, and we have uncovered a number of these throughout Israel at this time, um, and they're easy to find. You can go there. I don't know if Stephen saw any when they went to Israel. Uh, Pharisees had private pools for this purpose. That Near the temple, you would find others. In synagogues, you would find these. What you would find is if you were a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the things you would do is you would be, to use our word, baptized. You would go through this ceremonial washing. The theology is being developed there and is laid out for us. John did something very different, however. They would have understood the imagery for a Gentile to come to embrace the Jewish God. What John did was he said, no, not just your Gentile neighbors. I need the Jews to come and be baptized. That is radically different. His audience are not the pagans out there. It's the supposed believers in here. He comes from the wilderness into Israel. He doesn't go from Israel to the wilderness or to the Romans. He comes from them to the people of God. And he says, come and be baptized. And fundamental message is that of repentance. So we looked at his ministry. Let's look quickly at his message. Verses 7 to 12. And in verse 7 and 8, he gives a general introduction to a theology of repentance. Let's look at it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, that is not how you make friends and sell books. 
Oprah is not going to have him on her show after he publishes his book, um, you know, some sort of soft prosperity nonsense, right? He's calling his own nation sons of snakes, a family of vipers. You try that and see how it goes. But I want you to notice three things John says is repentance. First of all, repentance involves uh, the realization that we are sinners. It involves the realization of sin. Sons of snakes or the offspring of snakes, family of snakes, however you want to articulate this, is not a compliment. To this day, if you call someone, you can use various terms that utilize the snake imagery, and it's never a compliment. Never a compliment. No different back, back then. Broods of vipers in the desert were quite deceptive. Remember that Paul gets bitten by one in Malta. He's on the island. One could easily mistake them for a dead branch. I've never been bitten by a rattler, never been close to being bitten by a rattler, but I was afraid I almost got bitten by one, but I can't prove it. I went out uh, behind the parsonage where we lived was a field, and they, 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 they cut it for hay once a year, which meant it got really tall in grass. And one day, I was just, I don't know why I did it, I started walking out there, but I was on the telly, okay? And this, this is when both, uh, 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 both ears were working. So I had, I had a noise coming in one ear while I could still listen in the other ear. And I heard something that I construed as a rattle. Now, it may not have been a rattle. The kids could have had one of their little toys outside. I don't know. I did not wait and find out. If you heard something that, because the rattles are all over Brett County uh, and Copperhead. So, so if you heard something outside this church that sounded like a rattler, you'd high step it out of there. I literally high stepped it. I went all, you know, Emmett Smith out through there, right? You know, I ain't taking no chances. And I hope I land on the sucker and crush his head, right? I mean, they, they, are, they are scary creatures and they can sneak up on you. And in the wilderness, they can be confused for dead branches. And once you pick them up, their immediate reaction is that to, to bite you. Now, uh, notice here his complaint is they are brood of vipers who are joining the crowd. They were not arriving to repent. They were arriving to judge. You brood of vipers, who told you to fear the, the wrath that is to come? You didn't come here to repent. You come to see this crazy preacher you've heard so much about. Your heart isn't ready for confession. So he's pointing out their, their hypocrisy. Now, hopefully by now, we've been here almost eight years. Hopefully by now, you know that when you see a snake, when you see a dragon, immediately your mind says, I've read about that before. And your mind immediately goes back to Genesis 3. I think that is on purpose. The, 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 the garden, the serpent of the garden is associated with Satan. That is very clear. Thus, when he calls them the family of snakes, he is calling them sons of the snake. That's not a compliment. He's saying what you are peddling is demonic. What you are selling is evil. And notice the next story in Matthew is the baptism of Jesus followed by the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan shows up. It's not an accident. Jesus is a true and better Israel where he takes that upon himself. He goes into the wilderness, which is what Israel is. 
There he meets Satan, who is dominating the priestly uh, class here. So we see that we must realize that we are sinners. Secondly, judgment. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You'll notice there that he associates wrath with the coming of the king. We associate the coming of Jesus as what a nice little boy he was. John sees it in eschatological terms that, that with the coming of Christ is the apocalypse. With the coming of Christ is judgment. And that is the irony of the story of Jesus is the cross looks like the judgment of man has fallen upon God. But the resurrection, the way Matthew tells it, shows it's the judgment of God falling upon man. But in grace, that judgment falls upon Christ. Remember that baptism is both for judgment and cleansing. So those who come to the waters, what you get is cleansing. You're like Noah on the ark. Those who reject that warning, you are like those outside the ark. You fall into the judgment of God. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of Khan? Thirdly, fruitfulness. It is one thing to say I'm a sinner. One thing to say I believe in judgment. But unless repentance is associated with fruitfulness, it is not genuine repentance. You see it there in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is about a straightforward definition. You're going to get a repentance. Those who, bear, uh, those who repent bear the fruit of their repentance. So many of us say, well, what I need is a second chance. No, you burned your second chance a thousand chances ago. What you, what you don't need is a pick-me-up. What you don't need is good advice. What you need is good news. And, and those who repent are transformed. That doesn't mean... It's just like that overnight, everything's fine and dandy. But rather it is to see that those who come to Christ, those who are cleansed, act clean. They act clean. So we bear fruitfulness. And I want you to notice finally the warning he gives in verses 9 to 12. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice how easy it is for him to associate judgment with fire. Righteousness with water. Those are contrast, obviously, and on purpose. John doesn't want Jews to think they are exempt from repentance. Remember, the, the, the idea is, okay, we've got this thing called baptism. It's laid out in the Old Testament for us, topologically, ceremonially, and practically. But it's the Gentiles who have to be baptized. John says, no, the, the real problem here is not with the Gentiles. The real problem here is with the Jews. Jews, those who go to church every Sunday morning, they're the first who need to repent. Get into the tub. Get into the tub. That's his message. Get into the tub. And if you come here and say, well, I go to the temple regularly. Well, I haven't missed a sacrifice. Well, we do the Shema each and every day. Well, I got good Jewish boys and girls who, who marry good Jewish boys and girls. And they got good Jewish boy and girl kids. And I'm a son of Benjamin. I'm a son of Levi. I'm a son of Judah. I'm a son of this or that. John comes and says, that is a waste. If God wants to raise up sons of Abraham, he can do it from the rocks. He doesn't need to do it from your mother or father. In essence, he warns, repentance is required regardless of our pedigree. You can walk out these doors and you can talk to people 
if you were to die today, would you, would you see Jesus? They would say, yes, why? They're a good person, and if that doesn't work, well, I was baptized after vacation Bible school when I was eight years old. My mother goes to church, and I grew up going to church. That type of Christendom is still haunts us as a nation, and it's the same thing John is warning about here. There's another type that I think is worth exploring here where we get repentance wrong. And to look at that, I think we need to look at C.S. Lewis. He's always better at this than I are. He wrote, an, he wrote an essay. You can find it in his book, God in the Dock, which I would recommend the whole book. But for our purposes, one, one essay would be enough. The essay is called The Dangers of National Repentance. I think this is where we're at. He's speaking in 20th century modernism. We're in 21st century postmodernism. But I think we, we have the same tendency today. Let me read a little bit from him. I promise I cut a lot of it out. The idea of national repentance seems at first sight to provide such an edifying contrast to that of national self-righteousness, of which England, this is right after World War II, of which England is so often accused of, with which she entered or said to have entered the last war, that a Christian naturally turns to it with hope. Most of these young Christian men were children during the war, and none of them had a vote or the experience which would enable them to use a vote wisely when England made many of those decisions which which the present disorders could plausibly be traced. Are they perhaps repenting what they have in no sense done? You see, you see, you see, you see the dilemma here is you got a bunch of young pups 10, 15 years after the war has been fought trying to explain to their fathers and grandfathers everything they got wrong during the war. Does this sound familiar? All right, we still do this. The issue is, let me correct what you did in the past because I'm better than you. This, this, this is still going on today. If not with World War II, it is something that's happened today. The next generation is going to tell us how we got it wrong. This is the idea of national repentance. If they are, it might be supposed that their error is very harmless. Men fail so often to repent of their real sins that the occasional repentance of an imaginary sin might appear almost desirable. But what actually happens, I have watched it happen. He's a professor in, in Oxford. To the youthful national penitent is a little more complicated than that. England is not a natural agent, but a civil society. When we speak of England's actions, we mean the actions of the British governments. The young man who is called upon to repent of England's foreign policy is really being called upon to repent of the acts of his neighbor. That is a huge point he's making that is worth your price of admission here this evening. For the foreign secretary or the cabinet minister is certainly your neighbor. I want you to pause there. I mean, you all know I do work at the Capitol. And one of the things that is astounding is when you ask people to pray for that guy who's elected that is of the other party you can't stand, God requires you to pray for him for the simple reason he is your neighbor. Oh, by the way, those neighbors next to you that you can't stand, God wants you to pray for them as well. But now it isn't you're praying for your neighbor, you are repenting for them. Can you start to see why this is a problem? And repentance presupposes condemnation. The first and fatal charm of national repentance is, therefore, the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting of our own sins 
to the congenial one of bewailing, but first of denouncing the conduct of others. Have you noticed this? It's always, well, well, you know, if I grew up in the 19th century, I would have been very much for abolition. See how righteous I am? Let me sit here and call for the repentance of the nation because my ancestors, my community, my state, my nation, whatever, they're the wicked ones. Right? The problem of poverty isn't the role I play in it, but what my parents' generation failed to do. Because you all haven't taken it seriously enough. So with that, repentance is really underlying it is condemnation. Not for my sins, but for yours. That is an easy thing to fall for. And I would say it's demonic. And this is one of the biggest problems we have today. We cloud it with the language of victimization. But it's essentially to repent of the sins of someone else. How many times have we said, well... They may not say they're offended, but I'm offended for them. Didn't know this was a vote. Ask that same person, what areas of unrighteousness has God called you to repent of today? Well, now you're speaking in tongues. Lewis goes on. It is not then the duty of the church to preach national repentance. Question: Is it not the duty? I think it is. Now, there is the context in, in, in the, uh, the New Testament of the church repenting. But the office, like many others, can be properly discharged only by those who discharge it with reluctance. We know that a man may have to hate his mother for the Lord's sake. The sight of a Christian rebuking his mother, though tragic, may be edifying, but only if we are quite sure that he has been a good son and that in his rebuke, spiritual zeal is triumphing, not without agony over strong natural affection. You see the illustration? If you have to rebuke your own mother, right, there is a place that could be appropriate for that. In Christian love, if the zeal is righteousness, the moment, he says, there is reason to suspect he enjoys rebuking her. That he believes himself to be rising above the natural level while he is still in reality groveling below it in the unnatural, the spectacle becomes merely disgusting. The hard sayings of our Lord are wholesome to those who find them hard. This is why C.S. Lewis should be read by everybody. Because I could have never come up with that. You see his point? When we condemn others, our neighbors, instead of looking at our own hearts, what we will find is, I quite enjoyed that. I love calling an entire group of people racists. I love calling an entire group of people bigots. I love calling an entire group of people evil and this and that. I quite enjoy that. Because the more evil they are, the more righteous I am. Because all I have to do is say, they wear the black hats, I wear the white hats. Don't worry about me, they're more evil than I. That is not repentance. And here comes John the Baptist saying, who warned you to flee the wrath of come? Don't think that because you're sons of Abraham that, that you're exempt from this. I'm warning you, you're sons of the serpents. You're a brood of vipers. So he gives them a right perspective. Notice how he concludes this. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, that is the job of a slave. A Gentile slave at that because your feet are dirty. Jesus takes the, 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 the posture of an oriental slave when he washes his disciples' feet. I am, I am below the lowest of society compared to him. He will not baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he'll baptize you with fire. Now, remember what he just said about fire. He associated fire with judgments. Here, the fire judges and condemns and it purifies. It's a true baptism. That's the point of the gospel. In condemning, it cleanses, it purifies. If you have gold, it's worthless until it goes to the fire. Because you've got to get all the muck away, then it is purified. What I've got is just water. What he brings is fire. It's the Holy Spirit. Notice he, he goes on. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat to the barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I want you to notice what John does here. His ministry is that of baptism. His message is one of repentance. But at the center of it all is the man, Jesus Christ. The very next verse, that man enters into the narrative. That's the one John is pointing us to. You come to Christ with a repentant heart. And it's not a second chance you're getting. It's not a wise rabbi you are submitting to. It's a savior you purifies through the waters and fire of judgments. And that judgment is laid upon him so that we might be cleansed. No wonder then we took the title of Baptists. Well, although John's message is a bit harsh in places, it is hopeful. What I have found is religious societies, wherever they are found, there is no room for grace. No matter how much you might repent, no matter how much you might apologize, no matter how well you might turn your life around, there is no room for restoration or grace in religious societies. When a religion dominates, there is no grace. We live in such a religious society. And every religious society is a shame culture. We live in such a one. Clearly, intersectionality is how the elect are chosen now. It's not by the love of God. It's by the color of your skin. It's by who you, you lay down with at night. It's by what weird ideas you can come up with and sell. Intersectionality is how we choose the elect. Everyone outside of that are Gentiles. Everyone outside of that are pagans, outsiders, and there is no hope for them. Cancel culture is shame culture and is the natural outworking of religion. Christianity has a harsh message, just like all religions do. 
And it demands that every single one of us to be accountable, not for the actions of other people, but first and foremost, our own. We cannot repent for them. We must repent for our own sins. But what sets Christianity apart from all religion, including secular religion, is that in repentance, there is grace in abundance. You see, you could be a son of the serpents in John's rendering. But if you get in the tub, there is plenty of grace to wash over you. It's a great story. I can't remember his name. Of a man who was a lifelong sinner, he got baptized. And as he came out of the water, the preacher said, Brother, all your sins have been washed away. Of which the man said, Well, I pity the fish downstream. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind.